The Michael Reed Show. Thursday morning, the 19th of December. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, the Oireachtas Committee on Sport met to discuss the financial problems at the FAI, but there was a notable absence, that of the Football Association of Ireland. The association is regretfully not in a position to appear before the Joint Committee uh, uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, that's today, December the 18th. As soon as the measures outlined are complete, the board will welcome the opportunity to appear before the committee at a time that suits your members. The board of the FAI thanked the committee for its patience and understanding at this crucial juncture for Irish football. You sincerely, Ray Walsh. The chair of the committee, Fergus O'Dowd, outlining two members uh, that the FAI would not appear before them. Something that was met with dismay by the members and also by the minister, Shane Ross. I'm dismayed like you are, that the FAI have decided not to appear here today. As you know, a group of consultants called COSI have been carrying out an audit of the governance of the FAI and what the COSI report says, well, we don't know exactly, but what we do know is quite incriminating. The committee will be aware that following consideration of the COSI audit on 27th November last, the Board of Sport Ireland decided against restoring funding to the FAI. While I've been advised that to share the full details of the Cosy Auditor's findings would be unlawful, I can confirm that their opinion is that, that the FAI is not fit to handle public funds. That's the Minister for Sport, Shane Ross, addressing uh, the Oireachtas Committee yesterday. The chair of uh, that committee, Fergus O'Dowd, is on the line with us now. And uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. There is much to discuss. Can you begin by explaining what the Minister meant there when he said that the board of the FAI is not fit to handle public money? Right, Okay. well, the first thing is that the audit, (coughs) the delight audit, um, has also found that the board, sorry, that they weren't able to certify their accounts for the last financial year. So there's uncertainty over the the true financial position of the FBI. We do know that it's precarious. We do know up to yesterday it was 55 million, but then the figure, I think, of 62 million was, was announced yesterday by Minister Griffin. So it's a very serious position for them to be in. And the concern is by the auditors that we put in a forensic auditor in there. Uh, Sport Ireland put in Cozy. They had to go outside the country, Michael, to get an auditing company that would actually do it. Um, companies in Ireland didn't do it because they were concerned about reputational mm. damage, I understand. So it's a very serious finding. Well, it's a very serious finding, but the minister didn't want to actually expand on why they came to that finding. No, no, because the reason is, you see, that the the other thing the ministers, what Sport Ireland did was they sent that audit, the COSI forensic to audit, guards, to yes, the Gardaí, yeah, and therefore... We all know that, uh, yes, yeah. Mm. yeah, no, no, I understand that, Michael, yeah, but it's yeah. just to, to, not to compromise in any way. Oh, no, and I, and I understand. No, no, I'm not yeah. saying you, but that, that was the reason he's not putting it in the public mm. domain. Yeah. Uh, so I think everybody at the meeting basically... We accept that because obviously the primacy is the Garda analysis of the of the report. Mm. But I mean, the questions that that statement in itself begs of the FII are endless. Of course, of course, no, it is absolutely 
so the point is that the I mean they're not fit the, to handle public money. That's correct. Yeah, that the the, the board uh, that board. Yeah, but the board is changing, uh, and that's the point. What the the other part of the debate yesterday went on for mm. six hours, Michael, mm. uh, which was. Uh, Pretty, pretty thorough going through yeah. most of the issues. And I sat through most of it, and it made for yeah. some very interesting listening. Very uh, good questioning by John O'Brien and mm, uh, other and we, members there. Uh, and, really went to the heart. Uh, and yeah. we'll, we, we will talk about that in a moment, and we'll hear some of uh, the questions that Jonathan O'Brien put to the Minister about the future of uh, the League of Ireland and uh, sure. indeed uh, the national team and so on. But when it comes to the board uh, and their inability, uh, because nobody obviously trusts them to handle public money. Uh, well, what does that mean? Because there was a, another interesting question uh, put uh, to you, I think, uh, as uh, the chairman. Uh, how uh, is uh, the committee going to speak to the FAI if uh, the minister uh, doesn't want to deal with the existing board? Well, the point is, you see, that there are 12 directors um, on the board of the FAI. Eight of them are known. They were all selected at their annual general meeting in Trimder earlier this year. And all of them, bar two, are new. In other words, they've never sat on the board and they've had no association with uh, John Delaney in, in, in a mm. board capacity. Uh, so they're all new, except, sorry, apart from two of them, mm. one who has resigned to represent youth soccer mm. and the other is the outgoing president. So six of those have no have had no involvement. And come February, we should have a, a clean sweep. Is that right? Yeah. Even hopefully, even sooner than that. Sooner than that, but 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 that's the question. Four, uh, how 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 do you speak to the existing board if if they're being replaced, and how do you find out the answers to the yeah. questions from people who weren't in a position to uh, know yeah, what was going think, on? Yeah, but I think what's happening is that there are four other directors. Uh, the positions were advertised nationally, and people over 150 people applied to be considered for independent directorship of the FAI, no involvement with the FAI, mm-hmm. they'd like to be on the board. So they have been identified and they are looking at the financials of the organisation and they're meeting with Sport Ireland and I presume the FAI, but I'm not sure if they're meeting with the FAI, uh, to, to make up their minds whether they'll take up those positions. Mm. John Tracy, the head of Sport Ireland, said yesterday uh, that he hoped that, that that would happen pretty soon. Now, it's been going on for months, Michael, so it's 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 been dragged out, but I don't I I I can understand rather mm. why if you were going to take well, up the mi- independent chair, you'd have to go through everything. Well, the minister expressed his frustration yesterday about these independent directors and why they haven't been <clears throat> appointed yet. He said he's yeah. asked and asked and asked and hasn't got a, a satisfactory explanation uh, as to why that is the yes. case. But I think he misunderstands situation. He misunderstands that situation. In fact, John Tracy confirmed yesterday. What I actually said subsequent to that was that they are they have been identified. It, they are now making up their minds, and obviously they're being advised and given whatever advice they can be given. Okay. And support. Uh, so, uh, so then you, to go back to your original question, then when they move into position, you have a new board, uh, and then you have acceptability in terms of the new phase because you'll have a new leader, you'll have a new chairperson. Obviously, you have they would then seek and look for the new chief executive who will have to be appointed uh, under, you know, I, I presume they'll okay. have to advertise for that. There's no... 
Okay, so, so but, like, but but as things new people but as, but as things stand, so the FAI cannot be trusted to to handle public funds, no, uh, and yeah. so the government funds the FAI to the tune of around three million euro, uh, and there is a new mechanism to be put in place to channel that money to where it's meant to go to. That's correct. There's a, a firm called, I think it's called BDO. They are actually acting as agents for Sport Ireland to get the money. Uh, to uh, pay, there's about 60 people who work full time as, as as soccer or football organisers right around the country. So they will pay their wages, but they need mm. backup and they need support services. And that's why we can't allow the FAI to go into liquidation because it will absolutely destroy the whole infrastructure. Um, and clearly the questions okay. that arose yesterday. Well, it seems as though they may have, the FAI may have destroyed football in this country. The FAI didn't come in to... There's no doubt about that, the, the, the FAI didn't come in to say anything to you or your committee yesterday, Fergus O'Dell. <coughs> have you anything to say to the FAI? Because they seem to be uh, out of sorts over how the Minister uh, revealed that they came with a begging bowl looking for £18 million. Well, I think it, I'm surprised that it wasn't more because their debts are... The debts of the FAI, known yeah. debts, are 60, 62. Mm. But their so, nose is out of joint would, that the minister made this public. But it, yeah, but I mean, I don't think... It, I, their nose might be out of joint, but I don't think it's any surprise. Uh, the question is, though, the government have to act and we have to support uh, the restoration of confidence, which mm. is what we're doing by making sure the directors change, uh, making sure that there's transparency and accountability, making sure there's new leadership. And I think if and when that happens... It would be like the transformation of the, you know, the Olympic Council, mm. where Mr. Hickey was in charge, and then when he went, how the new team under Sarah Keane took over. Now she was already a member of the board at that time, uh, but she had, you know, she was absolutely opposed to to Mr. Hickey's policies and okay. activities. So okay. Can that, we, like, that transformed. That transformed, and I think. The, the FAI will be transformed when this happens. I well, think. yeah, maybe too late, though, then. And this is uh, one of uh, the most concerning parts of what people heard yesterday. Maybe you can explain it to us in a, a little bit more, bit more detail because uh, the minister was asked if there's the prospect of the FAI going into examinership. He said he yes. hoped that wasn't the case. He was also asked then, uh, had uh, a study been done, had anybody looked at what that might mean? Uh, he said that that hadn't happened. Uh, but he, he did say that if it did happen, that as a result of that, it could mean the end of the League of Ireland. Uh, it could mean uh, the end of the Irish international soccer team. Yes, absolutely. I think there's, there's two issues. If the company goes bust into liquidation, all its assets are, are distributed. It's gone completely. And therefore, there is no FAI. There's no structure. And our international team can't exist without a governing body. So that's that's really, that mustn't and can't be allowed to happen. I think that's the first point. So the other alternatives then are, can you offload some of the FAI debt? And they owe, I think, about £29 million, mm. uh, on, on the Aviva. So there's a meeting taking place today between the Minister and the IRFU to talk about that issue. Might the government the- buy out the FAI stake? Well, I think that's one of the possibilities. The other possibility in the media today is that the, that the rugby union might take it all over, but mm. I don't think... I, I, you know, they, they have a surplus, believe it or not, of £28 million, and the FAI debt is 29 So like, they, they could be in a position, I'm not saying it's up to them, but I, I think the government has to be, you know, be helpful to everybody in terms of the new structures that are happening. Um, so, so the other po- problem then is, if the company, another way of doing it, if the FAI goes into what's called examinership, 
the court, you, they apply to the courts. An independent inspector is appointed. Mm. <clears throat> they decide whether it's, it can be, it can it can survive as going concern, yeah. mm-hmm. and that could mean some of the debts, uh, you know, could be written mm. off in that way. So, and that has been modelled. I think mm. the minister said Grant Thornton, who are advising the FAI, have or are looking at that. Mm. But, but they're all very difficult. But but, but, but without. The umbrella of the FAI, there cannot be membership of UEFA, and therefore there cannot be UEFA funding, and therefore that is the end of soccer in Ireland. Yeah, and that's what we have to make sure that that does not happen. And I believe it will not happen, and I believe the government will be determined to ensure that it can't happen. But they can't. They can't just say take over the. We don't know what their debts are. You know, we so all this, all these changes in the boards are taking place. So it's basically you often see uh, a premises under new management, and it will be. It may it may require a name change, Michael, <clears throat> because the FAI brand is 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 is, is so appalling at the mm-hmm. moment. Uh, that's what happened with the Olympic Council; they changed to the big federation. But that, so so there are ways and means of doing it. But the bottom line and your point is critical that it must not fail. We cannot let it fail. We cannot allow this to happen. So every single possibility, every option must be considered to to help it to survive with all the structural and personnel changes that are absolutely required. Okay, thank you very much indeed for joining us. We'll hear more from uh, the committee hearings later in the programme, but thank you, as I say, Fergus O'Dowd, Fine Gael TD and Chairperson of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Sport. The Michael Reed Show. Last July, uh, the President of uh, the United States asked uh, the President of uh, the Ukraine to investigate uh, Trump's political rival, Joe Biden. And yesterday, Donald Trump became the third President of uh, the USA to become impeached as a result of that. He follows in the footsteps of Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. Trump has been disgraced on two counts. But speaking afterwards at a rally in Michigan, President Trump made it clear that all of this was water off a duck's back. Merry Christmas, Michigan. Thank you, Michigan. What a victory we had in Michigan. What a victory. Was that one of the greats? Was that the greatest evening? But I'm thrilled to be here with thousands of hardworking patriots as we celebrate the miracle of Christmas, the greatness of America, and the glory of God. Thank you very much. And did you notice that everybody is saying Merry Christmas again? Did you notice? We'll hear more of Mr. Trump's uh, festive cheer and uh, fighting determination later. But let's talk about uh, this with Larry Donnelly, law lecturer with NUI Galway and political columnist with uh, the journal.ie. Good morning to you, Larry, and thanks for joining us here on the programme. Two articles passed. Uh, Trump has been found uh, guilty of abusing his power of office and obstructing Congress. Yes, I mean, I, I don't think anybody was uh, was surprised by the outcome. It generally broke down the way people thought it would. Uh, a solid Republican party line, not one Republican defected, uh, just a couple of Democrats who defected and voted uh, against impeachment. So uh, no real surprise in terms of uh, of the outcome, and again, I suppose no real surprise in terms uh, of Donald Trump's defiant 
uh, response. And I'm just listening to the, to the clip you played, mm. uh, and I think it's no mistake uh, that he's using phrases like glory to gl- the glory of God uh, and talking about Christmas and all those sorts of things, because at the end, end of the day, the evangelical community is a vital element of his base, and he's really speaking to them and sta- saying, um, this is my hour of need, please stick with me. He may have upset them as well because of comments he made uh, about uh, Republican Debbie Dingle. Uh, we'll hear some of those comments in a, a moment, but perhaps uh, you could put this into context for us. Who is Debbie Dingle. Debbie Dingle is uh, now a congresswoman, but she is the the wife of uh, a very, very long-serving congressman, uh, John Dingle, who was in office, who who passed away recently, but who was in office until just a few years ago, uh, who was elected in the 1950s. I think you believe he's the longest-serving congressman uh, in the history of the United States, a very, very popular figure in his home state of Michigan. Uh, His wife succeeded him. Uh, Again, I don't think it was wise for the president to mock her as he did last evening. Yeah, well, uh, the President was talking about life after death and uh, where John Dingle may be. We'll just take a, a little listen to this and come back to you in a moment. Debbie Dingle, that's a real beauty. So she calls me up like eight months ago. Her husband was here a long time. But I didn't give him the B treatment. I didn't give him the C or the D. I could have. Nobody would have, you know. I gave the A-plus treatment. Take down the flags. She calls me up. It's the nicest thing that's ever happened. Thank you so much. John would be so thrilled. He's looking down. He'd be so thrilled. Thank you so much, sir. I said, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Maybe he's looking up. I don't know. I don't know. Right, now, the interpretation of that is uh, if uh, he's looking up, the president meant uh, that he was in hell. This hasn't gone down well at all, Larry. No, I think it was a stupid comment uh, to make. And again, to what end? You know, it's the kind of thing he says off the cuff that maybe uh, I suppose his really ardent base likes. You know, this is a guy who says what he thinks and speaks off the cuff. But I think the vast majority of Americans will regard that as a uh, rather disgusting statement, especially uh, given the man who it was made about. So uh, a needless mistake, I think, on a day when he could least afford to make it. Right. He's been impeached. What does that mean? Well, an impeachment is akin to an indictment under the old English English mm. common law system. It effectively means that there's probable cause uh, to charge him with a crime. Uh, and there will be a trial at some point uh, in the United States Senate where there will where he will be charged with those two uh, uh, you know two crimes or two impeachable offenses I should say uh, under the United States Constitution uh, at that trial uh, there will be managers from the House of Representatives who will prosecute the case uh, and Donald Trump will have uh, defense counsel it should be said that it's not like a real trial in the sense that uh, the jury is comprised of politicians who will be making uh, a political decision as much as anything else and all also, we have the interesting wrinkle uh, that this time around, uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, has said he is a biased juror. He is going he is going to work with the Trump administration uh, on how the trial proceeds. So it's a very political process. Now, the other interesting point here is last night after the vote was concluded, uh, Nancy Pelosi indicated that she mightn't send the articles of impeachment to the Senate right away. We had all anticipated a January trial. Mm. She might do that. And the, the reason she's saying that is because she wants to try to negotiate 
uh, with the Senate and say, we're not going to send you these articles until you can guarantee us that the certain witnesses will be called, et cetera, and there will be a fair trial uh, in the Senate. Um, it's an interesting development. Uh, but, you know, again, the issue will become how long is this going to be hanging over people's heads? And at the end of the day, is it going to change the outcome in the Senate? Uh, and my answer to that is highly is most likely no. Uh, and what is he being tried over? Is it if he is fit for office and if he's found guilty, let's say, for want of a better way of putting it, does that mean that he can be removed from office? Yeah, he's, it's going to relate to the two counts, the abuse of power and yeah. obstruction of Congress. That's what it's going to the trial will relate directly to. If he were uh, found guilty, now remember, he would need to be found guilty by two-thirds of the United States Senate, meaning that 20 Republicans would have to jump ship. That's why this is highly, highly, highly unlikely to happen. Uh, but if he were uh, found guilty, then yes, uh, he would be removed from office, and he would be the first president in the history of the United States to be removed from office in this fashion. Okay, well, as you say, that's uh, unlikely, but then there's uh, the real trial, which will be the next uh, American election, and Donald Trump uh, would seem pretty confident that he's going to be re-elected. Uh, it was amazing uh, to watch him speak for two hours last night. Uh, hard to think that somebody would stand in a stadium for that long listening to somebody speak about themselves and how great they are and how great he is. He had an awful lot of good things to say about himself. How will all of this go down with the American people? Uh, will the fact that he has been impeached make any difference in terms of how they vote? Well, this is, I think, why Nancy Pelosi was so reluctant to go along with impeachment from the beginning, uh, because she saw it back in 1998, how it backfired on the Republicans when they impeached Bill Clinton. Uh, and I think her concerns have proved to be valid ones. If you look at the latest round of polling, uh, the reality is that all the proceedings and the explosive testimony we've heard in recent weeks has only improved the president's approval rating. It's gone from 39% uh, to 45%. And it has also increased the number of people who are opposed to impeachment and opposed to removal from office. There is a sentiment in the United States, and I've heard it from people, uh, people who aren't just, who, who, people who didn't vote for Donald Trump, that why are they doing this? The reality is it's going nowhere. Mm. Why are they afraid to take this guy on at the ballot box? It seems like they're afraid. And also, why aren't they doing the nation's business? I mean, it's, uh, it's extraordinary to think, when's the last time uh, that Lisa I had a substantive conversation on radio or elsewhere, a substantive conversation uh, about American politics? It's been so long, I can't remember. It's all about impeachment. And I think there is a certain amount of impeachment fatigue setting in uh, in the United States, and I think that's working to the president's advantage. All right, uh, but do people trust the president? President, I beg your pardon. <clears throat> No, it's a very good question. I think uh, I think probably uh, not even all of his base, I think, entirely trusts the president. Uh, but what they do like is that he's, you know, he's kicked up the system. Uh, he's kept some of his promises, at least. He's done the bidding of the evangelical right uh, and others. But I think the key thing, and we're hearing this already from the Trump campaign, one of the things he's going to be saying is, you might like me. Okay, he's mm. speaking sp specifically to the, to the white suburban uh, woman, you know, saying, you might like me, but you have to vote for me. The reason you have to vote for me is because I keep the economy ticking along. I keep your retirement secure. I'll keep the health care plans that you want. You can't vote for any of these Democrats because they're too far to the left and they will imperil your standing in society. And that I argument wins over the fact that uh, the Russians are his bedfellows. 
Well, I think I think it does because you know again, uh, you know, and look, I think that's you know that's a debatable assertion at best, you know, and I think if you look at how Trump's foreign policy, uh, you know, you can't exactly make the case very strongly that he's been soft on Putin, uh, despite some of his pronouncements. The administration's policy uh, hasn't been uh, soft on Putin, but the other factor here, and again, this is one that that's understated over here, is just the extent to which insularity in the United States trumps everything. Uh, Trump Trump recognized this when he campaigned, hence the America First slogan, because he recognized that the American people don't give a whit what happens really beyond its beyond the borders of the United States, and they certainly don't care about what happened in the Ukraine thousands and thousands of miles away. They care about the ordinary concerns that they have. Trump appealed to that sentiment very much. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us here this morning. That's Larry Donnelly, law lecturer with NUI Galway and a political columnist with the Journal.ie. The Michael Reed Show. Now we'll talk about why insurance in this country is unaffordable once again with Dermot Jewell, Policy and Council Advisor with uh, the Consumers Association of Ireland. Good morning to you, Dermot, and thanks for joining us. I wonder if the answer lies on uh, the front page of the Irish Times today. It says the legal bill for motor insurance claims that were settled in the course between 2015 and 2018 amounted to just under 500 million euro. What does that say to you? Yeah, that's that's the key in, in all of this. And it has been for quite some time. There are other factors, but that's a very big key in this because it's who is, is in charge of settling claims and how are the claims being settled. There are three elements to that in Ireland. One is they're settled through litigation. The other is that they're settled through the Personal Injury Assessment Board. And the final one is that they would be settled between the insurance company and the claimant without going to litigation or, or the, the injuries board. And between the three of them, I mean, even if you look at an average cost of a claim, to put that 500 million in context, the average cost of compensation, sorry, the average legal cost, we'll go with the first of all, um, of settling a case um, through litigation mm. has, has been identified by the central bank as just over 23,000 euro. That same settlement in legal costs by the insurer is €1,390 and for the personal injury assessment board €750. So we go from 750 to 1300 up to 23000 and that's just the legal costs without compensation. Compensation varies widely as well. So there's no question. But if there has never been a question that this was not the problem. Well, it's great business for uh, the legal eagles. Uh, I'm sure it's yeah. great business for a lot of people. And the, the, the bottom line is that a lot of people are making a lot of money out of this, while the rest of us are struggling, not just to, to uh, manage our household finances or, or how we spend our, our money, but in terms of living, because the impact that this has across all of our lives is incredible. We live in a ridiculous country where you send your children to school, but they can't run in the playground for fear of falling and the school being sued. You can't send them to a creche because it's unaffordable, because the creche can't get insurance. You can't bring them to a play centre. In fact, fun is outlawed in this country, I would say, because of unaffordable insurance costs. And these are the type of things, apart from us paying for it uh, on top of everything else, uh, whether you're buying bread and butter or new windows for the house, uh, insurance comes into the cost of every business in the country. That's exactly the problem, and has been. There's been a significant focus 
um, over many years on motor insurance, but life insurance and certainly home and and personal and injury um, protection, all of those insurances have risen to extraordinary levels. And understandably, it's exceptionally difficult for any, I'll put the word average, individual, A, to understand how they're compiled, and B, to understand how they can respond excuse me, or engage in trying to get them reduced because they consistently meet with a a blank wall. Mm. Sorry, that's as good as it's going to get. Take it or leave it. And if you have to leave it, then go uninsured. Nothing to do with us. And you're Mm. right. We can't function as, as a country like that specifically and particularly when it's affecting so many individuals and the individual element seems to be completely taken out of it when it's consistently told back to us, well, this is a pooling effort and everybody has to contribute in one side or if it's on the other side, well, we have to consider risk. But I mean, if, if that is the way that it is going virtually, literally, nobody will soon be able to afford any insurance. What's wrong with us, They are not coming down. But what what is wrong with us, though, uh, as a country, that we can't manage this? And I know that there's a a comp of culture, and I know that there's all sorts of reasons. Uh, Unfortunately, I know that there's all sorts of reasons. I mean, I think the point is, I I don't think I should be thinking about it. And I I wonder if people in other countries think about it. I, I mean, if you go out for... Uh, a few jars, let's say, in Germany tonight or over the weekend uh, and meet a stranger, would you be asking them what they think should be paid out for a whiplash claim? It's a very interesting point, and you've used one word there, Michael, that, that does determine what the problem is. It is culture. If you look to the banking sector, trying to change the culture, even even now, after one of the worst crises in on the planet, it's still taking a talk about trying mm. to stop a ship and turn around it is next to impossible it's proving so difficult and certainly when it comes to insurance it's the same because the culture the way we do things around here the way we 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 manage um, a balancing element of what it's going to cost and who's going to manage the risk and how we offset it has not changed in in decades um, and nobody wants to change it for the simple reason coming I can't help but feel and I, I, I love to be proven wrong but nobody's given me specific definitive details yet it seems to consistently come back to the fact that there's a lot of money being made and nobody wants to part with their share of what that significant amount of money is and mm. they just keep piling on a, a the cost and B the dilemma for quite a number of people who now more than ever um, cannot afford insurance and the interesting element of it if even if we were just to and I just just focus for a, a brief mm. second on motor insurance. We still don't know how many people can only afford third party only, how many can only afford third party for in depth. We don't know the number who pay by instalment. And I mean, even there's a premium even on paying by instalment. So you're struggling there. And we don't know yet what is the structure. Um, and we're unable to see uh, who are those who are unable to seek a quote because um, their car is over a particular age. So every element of Mm. opportunity is dictated by somebody unseen, unheard, and you literally engage more than ever now online, and you just see, sorry, not possible, not possible. And the additional worry and and responsibility within that, which seems to be avoided, is that if you come in with a 10-year-old car and you get basically a refusal, 
You have, you're supposed to declare that. And you've been refused for no other reason. But the car that you've minded, um, upheld and, and kept in the best of condition, roadworthiness and safety, mm. appro- approved by Gardaí and the National, uh, national um, Repair Plan, is, is accepted, not accepted by an insurance company because they just don't want to. Mm. It, it beggars belief. You're entirely right. I'd, say, I'd, say, I'd say the bookies are, are looking at your insurance companies uh, very enviously because it, it seems uh, as though the insurance companies never lose. And True. We, we're looking at this crisis coming down the road with 1,300 crashes about to close in the new year, or yes. many of them because they couldn't afford the insurance because of one provider pulling out of the market. Now the state's moving in. Uh, but it's the insurance companies who'll benefit or it's lining the pockets of the insurance companies as the headline of the Irish Independent says today. And they're not wrong because this was the whole genesis of putting together finally if what had used to what was in previous years and had a degree of success, the Motor Insurance Advisory Board. And now there's the cost of insurance working group. And a lot of the the figures we're hearing now and the, the outrageous costs that are there and an award element driven by culture are coming from a central bank review as part of the requirements of the cost insurance working group but the problem is which was the case and i can say i can acknowledge it because i was a member of the old motor insurance advisory board it took years and i kid you not it took nearly 10 years to finally make some sense of the figures and actually determine where the problem was, and that was back then. And I can understand the difficulty people are having now. But the problem is, as you quite correctly pointed out, it is affecting the very nature and fabric of how this country operates. And that shouldn't be allowed to happen. So something has got to be advanced rapidly. Um, I know, as you say, in terms of pressures, there's, there's a state setting in. But the, the state need, should, should have stepped in, perhaps, um, which one of the things we had recommended some years ago um, in terms of motor insurance alone. But, of course, that, that's just one other area. But it is a big area mm. where there are so, so many cars out there and so many people contributing, yeah. as or, you say, or, or, in, a, in a uh, difficult way. If you're in charge of the fire brigade, do you put out fires or do you stop them from happening? Uh, do you yeah. wait for a crisis to happen and step in or do you govern? Dermot, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us here. Pleasure, Dermot Jewell, Policy and Council Advisor with the Consumers Association of Ireland. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all of our listeners. Shane from Drogheda is one of those listeners. He was in touch about the FAI and the latest news on it, I suppose. He says it would be awful if clubs in the League of Ireland ended up defunct effectively because of the actions of those at the top of the Football Association of Ireland. How in God's name are they in so much debt, Michael? I just Mm. cannot understand this. It really does beggar belief. Well, there is some information on that, but it uh, appears uh, to be something that won't be made public until after a Garda investigation has completed John from Dundalk says what I cannot understand in relation to the FAI is where is all the money gone? How did nobody realise the severe financial trouble the association was in? And can this country really bail them out? Because how do we know that mistakes from the past won't be made again? I think an absolute change is needed and perhaps 
the FAI as we know it should be gone? Well, maybe the answers are in that cosy report. And as we've been hearing, we don't know exactly what it says in the cosy report. But the Minister for Sport, Shane Ross, has read the report. And yesterday he told the Oireachtas Committee that the board of the FAI is not fit to handle public money. Jack says, here we have the FAI who screwed up big time, been told what to do by politicians who screw up every day and just get away with it, Michael. Just think, for example, the printers, voting machine, children's hospital, data protection, Facebook tax, etc, etc. If, if the government was a company, it would be in liquidation. And on another issue, Michael, you still won't get rid of Trump, says Jack in a, mm. in a it text. Seems to, it seems he may be right, yeah. Mm. Another list- on the latter part, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Another listener <laughs> says that the country is just getting worse. Um, and then we'll move on to Carmel, who says that the situation at the FAI is unbelievable. Day by day and week by week, Michael, over the past few months, we've slowly learned how bad things really are. And in fairness, mm. we're very quick to give out about the media, says Carmel. Mm. But in this instance, it's thanks to the media that we know exactly what's going on. And the media exposed this and they were nearly prevented from doing so. And that is why it's so important to have independent investigative media in this country. Yeah, well, unfortunately, Carmel, I think the truth of it is we don't know the half of what's going on. Uh, we'd know more if we got to read the cosy report, but that can't be published because it may have a negative impact on a criminal investigation, may impede those investigations. Uh, but obviously, we'd know more if the FAI came out and spoke uh, about it from their perspective. As we heard earlier on, they didn't uh, go to the Oireachtas Committee yesterday. You heard Fergus O'Dowd read out a, a a letter explaining why that was the case and we'll take up uh, on those proceedings from that point now. I just want to make it clear that the committee are happy to uh, issue again through our clerk the invitation to the FAI and they were happy to meet them at any time and if needs be as early as possible in the new year. I think it's important that the committee states we don't have patience and understanding that they assume that on our behalf in the last line but also if we're inviting them back in, it should be before the tenure of the uh, Mr. Conway of ends course, in particular. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And that, uh, that this is something that the committee feels is absolutely vital because he was there when many of the issues took place and he's due to be replaced at the end of January, so it has to be before that. No, I agree. And in fact, yeah. it was Deputy Murphy proposed at our last meeting that we're happy to meet at the earliest time in January to facilitate such a meeting. On the one hand, we, I would like to see everyone attend from the board of the FAI. Of course. But on the other hand, we have the minister who says he will not deal with anyone of the, the old rail guard. Like, you know, so where are we going? Like, speed up, speed, speed, well, speed up the process. Like, you know, if the old guard don't go, the minister won't engage with the proper board of the FAI. Here we are looking to keep the, the, the old guard in place like, to, to meet them first. Like, you know, so how do we handle that situation, Chairman? Well, that's uh, members of the Rockers Sports Committee trying to make sense out of how to deal with the FAI. That is, if there is an FAI, that is, if the FAI is viable, or there's this other question. I'm content to let the FAI go into liquidation or examinership. I certainly don't want to see that happening. Uh, <coughs> the implications of that could be very, very <coughs> serious. I'd yeah. far rather see a settlement whereby they 
rise from the ashes. Uh, okay. And that's what we would aim to see in the interests of Irish football. The Minister for Sport, Shane Ross, responding uh, to Fianna Fáil's Mark McSherry, who raised uh, the prospect of liquidation or examinership, something uh, that was expanded on by Sinn Féin's Jonathan O'Brien. Obviously, I come at it from a different uh, perspective as a League of Ireland fan. If the FAI go under in the morning, or if they go under in April or May or June, whenever, if they go under, it's my understanding that the League ceases it's gone. There is no League of Ireland. There are no League of Ireland... Uh, well, the clubs will remain, but they won't have a league to, to play in. There won't be any European qualification places available because they are given to the governing body and not directly to the clubs. Have we done any work on uh, possible scenarios in the eventuality that if the FAI had to go in to examinership... Is it possible to continue the league if they're in examinership? If they don't go into examinership and they just go under, does the league automatically collapse? What happens to those qualification places? What happens to any money that may be outstanding to League of Ireland clubs? Um, If it does go into examinership, um, is there penalties imposed on the FAI in terms of qualification places for European competitions which will be passed on to League of Ireland clubs. Have we done any analysis on what the impact on League of Ireland would be? Because while I agree grassroots football is critical and it's important and we should be doing everything to protect it, there are many jobs within League of Ireland clubs as well which could potentially be at risk if the FAI went under. Um. We haven't done any detailed analysis on that whatsoever. What what I'd say to the deputy is this. When we met with the um, FAI on Monday night, Grant Thornton were there uh, as well, and I asked they had done some work on the consequences of examinership. There you have it. That's uh, the Minister Shane Ross responding to Sinn Féin's Jonathan O'Brien. Pretty grim stuff Mm. for football lovers. Absolutely. Alan says that he's annoyed that the FAI didn't have any representatives at the Oireachtas meeting. He says that uh, the body is representative of ordinary people involved in soccer on the ground and that questions need to be asked and they need to be answered by the FAI. Mm, Okay, I think a lot of people would agree with that. You'll be waiting though. Moving on then mm. to Trump. Okay. Uh, Tim from the Dog says Trump is not going anywhere, Michael, and will probably be re-elected. Uh, Jim was in touch, and he's flabbergasted at the support that there still is for Trump in the USA. And then you look at the support for Boris Johnson in the UK. Who'd have thought it, Michael? Both very unpredictable men who are capable of anything, Mm, he feels. I think so. (laughs) Moving then to insurance, um, Sean says, Michael, you asked the question, how are we here or how did we end up here with regards to insurance? And that uh, children, as you say, it's nearly outlawed that they're going to have fun. Mm. Uh, And it's all because of what was in place in this country for years. The court system that for years paid out huge amounts of money for ridiculous claims, says Sean. Mm. The compo culture was out of control 
And many people were a part of that. It was almost a given. If you had any kind of fall or tip, even if it was your own fault, Michael, Mm. you'd get Mm. a big payout. And how this was allowed to go on without almost being contested is beyond me. He says, another listener, Debbie, says, feel sorry for anyone in business trying to keep afloat with spiralling insurance costs. People are talking about Brexit, but this will be the factor that will bring down a lot of businesses unless something is done Mm, about it. Well, when you go into the shops today, no matter what you buy, uh, you might be buying presents, you might be buying groceries, uh, you might be buying something new to wear, but whatever you buy, uh, factored into that is Mm, the cost of insurance. Yeah. Yes, because it has to be passed mm, on yeah, in some yeah. way. S- same way with your house insurance, yes. same way with your car insurance, everything yeah. you do. Yes. Uh, uh, there's a, an impact, it there seems. There is, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Finally then to Geraldine from North County, Dublin, who was listening into your interview yesterday with Katrina Ward, mother, mother of own, whose operation mm. was uh, postponed, Michael. And what Geraldine is saying is that her heart goes out to parents like Katrina and others who are trying to do the best by their children facing an uphill battle. When is our government going to rake up and smell the roses? We don't want a health service where operations are being continuously postponed and cancer treatment being stalled, okay. says Geraldine. All right. Uh, we were also talking on the programme yesterday about people falling ill, and we didn't know how many people were falling ill in uh, the Drogheda area, but we knew that it was a significant amount of people possibly running into the hundreds, uh, and many of them had coincidentally or otherwise been in the D Hotel in Drogheda. And as a result of that, we asked the HSE to make comment, and they say that they are investigating reports of a, a large number of persons suffering gastrointestinal illness, diarrhoea and vomiting following attendance at a hotel in Drogheda on the 13th of December. That's the date that they're citing. They say the outbreak is thought to be due to norovirus infection, although this has not yet been confirmed. Now, norovirus is what you and I would generally refer to as the winter vomiting bug. They say there is presently a high incidence of this infection in the community in the country and outbreaks have been noted in hospitals, residential care homes and schools throughout the country. Hotel staff is being advised of the recommended measures to minimise the risk of further infections in the hotel. HSE, Public Health and Environmental Health are still assessing the outbreak and will continue to monitor the level of the spread of the infection and we'll have more information on that as soon as we get it for you. The Michael Reed Show. Now, the Minister for Housing has said that rent pressure zones are working, much to the amusement of many people who wonder if that's the case, why have rents risen by an average of 8% nationally in the course of the last year? Let's talk about this with Jerry O'Connor, Finnegal Councillor in Meath, and Sinn Fein Councillor in Meath, Darren O'Rourke. And a very good morning to both of you, and thank you indeed for joining us. Jerry O'Connor, can you answer that question? Well, looking at the DAS report that was issued there recently for quarter three in 2019, uh, the average rent uh was year on year the change is 3.6%, which is below the 4% uh, rent pressure zone target that was agreed uh, by the Minister a couple of years ago. Uh, and if you look at all the, the bordering counties to Dublin and Dublin itself, the, the, the rise is 4%. Uh, it's 3.6 in Loud, it's 3.1 in Kildare, 3.8 in Wicklow. They're all within the 4% rent pressure 
uh, zone areas. And so, what it, and I did say this last time mm. I was on the show, which it was going to take time, but I think we're beginning to see some of the, the things that, that will help get, get out of this situation. First of all, there is a lack of supply still. There's a huge demand because of population increase. We still have to tackle why it's so expensive to build. Uh, but the, the one couple of good things that you can see from the report is that there's 10% more rental available from since the same time last year. Okay, we are we are, we are looking at uh, different figures, uh, the RTB figures, uh, which uh, have been published uh, this week. No, yeah, yeah, no, I know that, but I'm just saying the staff is, is one that we've always, we've always looked at as well. Mm, the, oh, that, that, the, that's, that's the Residential fine. Tenancy Board figures uh, indicate uh, that uh, it may... Uh, be stabilising or not increasing as much in Dublin and Cork uh, where the increases are around 6% and that they're 9.6% outside of Dublin uh, and Cork uh, giving you a national average of around 8%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I understand that, but I'm saying we've always looked at also the DAF report, which is on a quarterly report. So you believe the red pressure zones are working, do you? I believe that, that, that based on, if we're consistent, well, when we've always talked about the DAF report, quarter on quarter, mm. uh, we can see the trend that it is, it is working. Okay, Darren O'Rourke, uh, do you agree? I, I don't at all. Um, I don't suppose you're, you're surprised or, or Jerry is surprised in relation to that. The, the figures as I see them, the RTB figures, uh, tell a very different story. Um, and I have to say they confirm my own experience and, and, and the, the experience as far as I can see it that constituents of mine are dealing with. So, so they say that um, year on year, the increase in rent in County Mead is 14.6%. And that quarter on quarter, the increase in rent in Mead compared to quarter two to quarter three this year is 5.7%. So that to me says very clearly that um, the, the, the rent pressure zones aren't working. And so it also says, that the average, the standardised average rent in Mead is now €1,206. But mm. if you look on Taft.ie today, um, as I did in my own area of Ashbourne, there's there's no properties available uh, for, for that money. There's certainly not a property that, you know, um, a family could move into for that money. The, the, the average rent for a, a three-bedroom apartment in Ashbourne this morning is €1,500. Um, so, so that's the the prospect that people are faced with at this time of year, if they're faced with, uh, you know, needing to, 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 to move. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I heard from Fine Gael, I heard the minister say that, you know, there's that the rent pressure zones are, are working and that it's, uh, it's levelling off in, in terms of Dublin. I think what you're seeing is Dublin is reaching saturation and that you're having a huge overspill. So, the likes of ourselves in Mead are facing a huge influx of people from Dublin who can't afford to rent there, are moving out to, to the commuter belt area, and uh, we can see rents increasing and increasing and increasing. And mm. in my opinion, it will continue to do that until such time as... But uh, who, 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 who is renting these properties, or who is not, uh, more to the point? Uh, because uh, if you're earning less than 50000 for example... Can you afford to rent in County Mead? Yeah, there's definitely a segregation. I have seen that myself, uh, Michael. Um, there's a segregation in terms of the, the types of people that are, are able to live in these places. Mm. So, so, so what we have is in, in, in a lot of circumstances, you have a, num- you know, a number of families, a number of, of 
individuals who ha- who who are mobile, who um, who don't have uh, strong family connections, maybe uh, uh, groups of, of of foreign nationals who can you know who who like our foreign nationals uh, abroad in in Australia and elsewhere can group together maybe five or six mm. people in a house. That's that's the type of thing that's happening uh, in, in, in the commuter belt area as I see it. And um, that's my experience of, of going from door to door. You know, there's a number of cars outside the door because there's, you know, there's five or six people living there. There's five okay. or six people working. Is that your experience, Jerry O'Connor? If you don't house share, you can't afford to live in County Mead unless you're earning more than 50000 I think you have to also factor in, uh, Michael, uh, that uh, Mid County Council, through its housing assistance payments, HAPS, would take up an awful lot of the heavy lifting on a lot of these rental properties where people are, are, are getting assistance to pay the, the, the rents. And I'd agree with Darren, the rents are a lot higher than both DAF and the residential property board. Okay, uh, so, so. But uh, again, I, I will say again, but the point remains the same. Unless you're earning more than 50,000, you can't afford to live in County Meath off your own income. You'd rely on welfare. Uh, no, I, I didn't say that. I'm just saying that's another factor into it. Okay. We have a lot of people with housing assistance payments. Okay, but my well, well, well my, my question to you then, I'll ask the question again. Yeah, uh, or, no, uh, no, I understand the question. Uh, if you're in less than 50,000, you can't afford to rent. Or, 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 or else, uh, if you don't house share. Uh, yes, or you, or, or, or you save a deposit because it's still cheaper to, uh, to, to uh, pay a mortgage than it is to rent. That's the reality of it. Uh, the reality is that the, the lack of supply... It's causing an increase in prices. Uh, there's, a, there's a strong demand. We know a population is growing. We see it out here okay, in, in the county. But, but isn't that just pathetic? Mm. It is, it is, it's not great. Uh, it's, it's a remnant, where, and we're still recovering from, from the crash. But it's pathetic, isn't it? It's, it's not good. It's not good, and it's going to take time. And I've always said that, Mike. It is going to take time. And if we if, if we can look at other indicators like our infra- inflation rates have fallen the first time since 2013, the, the, the property market uh, is, is getting a bit cooler. The prices mm. are not increasing as much. And I think all of these things will contribute to sorting this out in, in the in medium to long term. But we have a, price, a problem at the moment. We have mm-hmm. a huge problem at the moment for rent. No, we do. Uh, so much so that uh, it's quite probable that some people will only ever have a place that they can call their own home when their parents die. Michael, uh, I agree. Yeah, that's, that, 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 that is the case. Um, and the, the nature of home ownership, the, the, there was for a long time a conversation in Ireland, uh, you know, we don't have European standard, uh, European uh, numbers of, of renting. Uh, we have a, an attachment to owning our own properties. Well, actually, the, the situation has completely reversed. We're lower now in terms of home ownership than, than the European average. We're, we're, we've completely reversed that position, and that isn't through the wish or the want of the people, mm. in my opinion. They still want to, to okay. own their own homes. We're, we're going into a, an election next year. Do you think that uh, will be the legacy of this government, Jerry O'Connor? No, I don't, I don't think it's the legacy. I think it's the symptom of problems that they were caused 10, 12 years ago, which caused the crash. Uh, a lack of supply when, when yeah. the social industry died. Three hundred and thirty thousand people. Finnegan was going to Finnegan was going to sort out the housing crisis. They were going to sort out the health service. Uh, they were going to sort out uh, the well, economic I think, crisis. I think, I think you can see that that, that it, it is in sort of supply is increasing. 
We can. We only have to look out our windows. We can see cranes all over the place, all over Dublin. I must be. Uh, you can you can see them in South East Mead. The yeah. population is going to increase. The population count is going to increase to under twenty. I'll, I'll try and get an appointment with the optician later because I mean, what I'm saying is uh, the worst waiting lists for housing, the highest rents, uh, un- uh, affordable uh, for people to buy. Uh, the housing situation has never been worse. The housing situation is, is a crisis, and I said this before, Mike. It is a crisis, and it, there's no short-term magic to sort it out. There's a number of factors have to happen. Mm. The rent pressure zones will help. We'll bring it down. We, not so long ago, uh, two well, years ago, Mike, we were I, talking about 13 and 14. I, I, I bet you like the last election and the election before that, when uh, people are campaigning, they'll have some very short-term solutions, and we'll probably be talking about uh, it for it, years to every, come. Er, er, mm. Everyone has, has knows all the questions, Mike. Mm. Okay. Uh, but very few of them have any of the answers. Okay. All right. Listen, we have to leave it there. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Fine Gael Councillor Jerry O'Connor and Sinn Féin Councillor Darren O'Rourke. Now, let's go back uh, to that rally that took place in Michigan. Uh, Donald Trump on his feet for a couple of hours following how he was uh, impeached. Uh, it was something he didn't take very seriously, I don't think. It's so much fun. They want to impeach you. They want to do worse than that. By the way, by the way, by the way, it doesn't really feel like we're being impeached. Do you? The country is doing better than ever before. We did nothing wrong. We did nothing wrong. And we have tremendous support in the Republican Party like we've never had before. Nobody's ever had this kind of support. But this sacred season, our country is thriving, and it's thriving truly like it has never, it has never happened before to the extent what's happening now, and by the way, your state, because of us, not because of local government, but because of us, because of the job that we've done, because I understand she's not fixing those potholes. That's what the word is. It was all about roads, and they want to raise those gasoline taxes on you. We don't want to do that. <sighs> Donald Trump speaking in Michigan. Well, as you've been hearing on LMFM's news, uh, Gardaí are investigating how a house in Moneymore was completely gutted after an arson attack last night. Local Labour Party councillor P.O. Smith is on the line. Good morning, P.O., and morning, thanks buddy. for joining us. What were you able to find out about this? Well, what I was told last uh, this morning was that the the house, as you said, was completely gutted. Uh, it was a house that belonged to a family who are themselves probably not linked, and not involved in the feud, but have family members who are involved in in, in the feud. And uh, it was a vacant house, and uh, uh, significant damage was done to it. Now, uh, at this stage of the game. I'm not sure whether it was a private house or, or, or right. a council house. <clears throat> and that's what I'm trying to find out at this point in time. But uh, as far as you're concerned, the motivation was linked to the gangland feud. Well, that's certainly the information that I'm getting back. Uh, <clears throat> as I said, I'm not saying that the, fa- the people who, all, who, who occupy, uh, occupy the house or own the house uh, are directly involved, but certainly... Uh, it was linked to the feud. There's no mm. doubt about that. Mm. No, and I understand that. And uh, I, I'm sure, uh, as is the case with a, a lot of these uh, attacks, a lot of innocent people get caught up uh, as a, a result of somebody being targeted. Yeah, we've seen that in the past, over the last year and a half. <clears throat> uh, we've seen a lot of houses damaged. 
but you know there are certain things that we have to do as a council as well we, we have to look at our housing stock we need to look and see if some of our houses are vacant because of the feud and uh, what's going to happen to those houses we need to look at the houses to see if they've been occupied by people who are involved uh, in a feud situation and that they've been engaging in antisocial behaviour I know mm. at this point in time the council are actively looking at mechanisms to uh, engage with people who are occupying the houses and involved in antisocial behaviour with a view to uh, uh, eviction and uh, that's something that has to be really brought out to the fore as well because that has serious implications I think for communities uh, we need to show communities that we're, we're standing with them and mm. that we're not going to tolerate people dictating to the council uh, what's going on in, in council estates Yeah, You know the way the song goes uh, do they know it's Christmas time uh, does that matter at all uh, or does it have any bearing on all of this is it worth uh, appealing uh, to the people involved in uh, this dispute to lay off over the course of uh, the next few weeks well, I think it is. I mean, <clears throat> from a human level, I think everybody's always open to, uh, you know, escaping away from the, the trouble that they find themselves in. Most people want to live a, a kind of a quieter life. I think mm. for a certain small number of people involved in both sides of this feud, um, it's probably, they're not going to change. But I think they're a very small minority of people. And uh, I think... And, and no matter you know, where that house is exactly in money more, it's in a very built-up estate and a, a lot of people will witness what happens when this type of a, attack takes place. And at this time of the year, we're talking about a very special time, or what should be a very special time of the year for very young children who are waiting for Santa Claus to come. Uh, uh, not this kind of thing that will leave them scarred for life, possibly. Exactly, and that's the reason why, you know, law enforcement, council, uh, councillors, uh, the community, we need to act, actually act together and we need to have somebody uh, that's going to coordinate some type of a, a, an action that we can all come together as a community and say, this is not the values that we stand for. And the vast majority of people who live in in the areas where this type of stuff is taking place, uh, decent law-abiding people, there's absolutely no doubt about that. It's a small, very small minority, but the, the trauma that it inflicts on young children and also um, senior citizens who are living alone, because, you know, so there, there are a number of, a large number of people who live alone in some of these areas. And they close the doors at six o'clock at night, and that's it. And they don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to come up with a solution. I'm disappointed, to be honest with you, that, you know, a year and a half later, we haven't uh, got a coordinated uh, approach to this in terms of the community law enforcement and Low County Council. And uh, like, like this time last year, myself and Jed Nash met with Low County Council Review to pull in together various agencies and trying to get some type of an outcome in regards to addressing these issues. And to date, there has been no outcome and there's only been two meetings and it's very difficult to get information in regards to what's actually happening. And so if Low County Council don't want to be the coordinating body in regards to this, then they should step away. Right. Um, if the house was empty, uh, what do you think uh, was the logic behind it or was there any logic behind it? Do you think they thought somebody was there or are they just taunting somebody? Well, I, I think it's part of this uh, tit for tat and, you know, I don't think that part of it is going to go away too soon. I mean, like people tend to go back to the lives. I spoke about this before when when there was no overt violence being inflicted around the, mm. the area and then all of a sudden it pops up. Uh, and we tend to think when things are quiet that everything is sorted out, but it's far from sorted out in many respects. Yeah. And, you know, certain people are embedded in communities and uh, they feel that they have the freedom 
um, the ability to be able to carry out attacks such as what happened last night. And you can't blame them I suppose to some degree and if it's tit for tat there's a lot of tat to contend with uh, including the two murders of recent times. There is, and uh, unfortunately we predicted on your show there uh, uh, last year that it was going to be somebody losing their life in regards to this. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to think that a video of a shooting in Harman's garden resulted in mm-hmm. extra resources for the guards in, in Drogheda. Uh, it wasn't the pleas from the guards or politicians, but it was actually a video that went viral and uh, was shown on live national television uh, that actually prompted the government to uh, invest in the guards in Drogheda. And that's made a significant difference. But just goes to show, you know, actually wonder... Who listens to pleas from politicians and uh, and senior guards uh, at the uh, levels of power? You know, and this is the problem that we have now in relation to tackling it at a community level. Uh, there are no supports coming to actually coordinate a community approach, support the community, and express to people who are carrying out this type of behaviour the values that they they have are not the community's values. And we should be standing together as a community, and they should know that if they don't adhere to the, the values that we have that the full force of the law will target those small group of people who are causing this problem. Mm. What are the community values and who are the people who are causing the problem? I suppose this is another question. I mean, in part, the answer is obvious. Uh, The dealers and the gunmen and all of that sort of thing. But uh, almost everybody in the community plays some role uh, either by what they're doing or what they're not doing, as uh, the case may be. And uh, I think you've made the point in, in the past about how we need to look at legislation in relation to drugs. And if people want to use drugs, that perhaps uh, we should legislate in respect of that uh, rather than create this aspect of criminality that surrounds the illicit trade. But then there's also the question of uh, people who are breaking the law at the moment. Uh, I mean, the forecasters are saying that it won't be a white Christmas, but uh, the cocaine dealers are are promising uh, their clients a white Christmas. Well, I can tell you that there's absolutely no problem getting cocaine in Drogheda, and I'm sure in the Belk as well, or anywhere else around the county. And I mean, uh, that's just the reality of it. And uh, Christmas parties are taking place at this point in time and over the last week. And you can be guaranteed that at Christmas parties there are people using cocaine. And it's not the people that you see uh, in the shabbled states walking around the streets. It's people who uh, go to the daily walk, who have families, who have children. And uh, that's what's driving the fuel, that's the fuel behind the actual money for the for the drugs gangs, <clears throat> not the people who are disheveled and uh, physical wrecks and mental wrecks that you, we often see on the streets. Uh, and that's the reality. And so it's normalised in many respects. And, uh, you know, we continue to turn a blind eye to it, but uh, it, it is kind of eroding the values of our community and what we stand for. And every time people go out on the weekend and they think it's okay to actually sniff cocaine, for example, uh, without thinking about the consequences, it's another uh, nail, if you like, in, in, in the values that we have as a community. And uh, it's incumbent on, on me and other politicians to stand up and, and say, this is wrong. This is not behaviour that we uh, for our younger children growing up. And it's not the type of uh, community that we want people to think uh, this type of behaviour is normalised in. Well, I suppose last night's attack is uh, a reminder that maybe it is normalising and maybe we've uh, another 12 months of this ahead of us. Well, I think even longer. I think this is something that will rumble on and rumble on. And uh, I think there is a small, until such time as uh, Angada Shikona uh, successfully put people away for a long period of time. And I think, uh, in fairness to them, they're working very hard in regards to doing that. And, and I, I think there will be some 
moving in that in 2020. Uh, but certainly, I think the community need to see uh, that type of action taking place. And as I said before, <clears throat> maybe the the criminal justice system needs to look at the the burden of proof in regards to <clears throat> convictions, because certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly at this point in time, uh, society seems to be on the wrong side of the law, and uh, the law seems to be actually supporting uh, criminals. We all, well, a lot of people know who's doing uh, a lot of the damage. Uh, the guards know who's doing a lot of the damage, but getting enough evidence to put them away uh, seems to be the problem, and the burden of proof there. Uh, seems to be an issue. All right. Labour Party Councillor Peel Smith, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Now, I was telling you about uh, that Donald Trump rally earlier on, how he spoke for two hours. Incredible to think that somebody would talk about themselves basically for two hours and how great they are. The people's president, if you like. Maybe the single biggest reason I ran for president. It might be the single, and I had a lot of them. Immigration, I had a lot of them, but that may be the single biggest With today's illegal, unconstitutional, and partisan impeachment, the do-nothing Democrats, and they are do-nothing. All they want to do is focus on this. What they could be doing are declaring their deep hatred and disdain for the American voter. This lawless partisan impeachment is a political suicide march for the Democrat Party. Have you seen my polls in the last four weeks? It's crazy. You know why? Because people, you know, we have an election right down the road. I announced three months ago that I'm running, right? I'll give you a little clue. I announced because I figured once I announced they'd never impeach, nobody would be so stupid. But they've been trying to impeach me from day one. They've been trying to impeach me from before I ran, okay? Because if you remember, when I ran, I went immediately to number one, never came off number one. We had center stage from day one in the debates. So we had, I don't know, 14, 15 debates. We had a total of 18, actually. People forgot there was one that they never talk about, but that's okay. But we had 18 people, and I was center stage. And I said, wait a minute, this is no good. I want odd numbers. Because if you're center stage, if you have a 10, that means two people are in the middle. So I said, make it 11 or make it 9. Okay? Or I'm not showing up. And generally, they did it. Because we were way ahead from the beginning. But I made a lot of great friends out of that group. And many of them are good friends today, although you wouldn't know it based on the... They say that was the meanest. That was a pretty mean primary, you got to say. Wasn't that fun? Through their, I liked it, through their depraved actions today, crazy Nancy Pelosi's House Democrats have branded themselves with an eternal mark of shame. And it it really is. It's a disgrace. They just love him. He just loves himself for that matter. That's the president of uh, the United States of America, Donald Trump. The Michael Reed Show. 
Smoking kills. Uh, that's why so many people are giving up smoking cigarettes. In fact, uh, according to the World Health Organization today, 60 million fewer people smoked last year than would have been uh, the case in 2000. Others are, are vaping, of course, but a study from Queen's University shows uh, that vaping can be as bad for your health as smoking can, exposing you to bacterial lung infections. Let's talk about this with John Mallon, spokesperson person with Forest Ireland. A very good morning to you, John, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, and uh, you're somebody who smokes and vapes and promotes smoking and vaping. Maybe this is the year that you'll give up, is it? <laughs> OK, Michael. Uh, first of all, uh, good morning to you and season's greetings to you and your listeners. Uh, a couple of corrections there. Um, I don't promote either smoking or vaping. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I was a smoker. Uh, I'm now vaping only. Uh, I did both for, I think, nearly three years, uh, and I finally worked the cigarettes down to a point where I just quit them. Okay. Did you tell the cigarette companies that? Of course, yeah. Okay. Uh, That's not a, that isn't the difficulty at all, because we were Because Forest Ireland is funded by the tobacco industry, isn't it? Yes, it, it's through the UK, the funding. The mm. funding is, is very modest, and it's to ensure that we can go on the road once a year. Uh, it covers travel expenses. That's the level of it. Uh, it's nothing like the millions that go into the research on the other side of the coin. Uh, nothing at all like that. Mm. We're, we're, a, we're a small organisation. But our, our view of the world has not really got mm. to do with cigarettes per se. It's got to do with freedom. It's a stance on freedom, the freedom okay. to choose. But you've, uh, chose, you've chosen to give up smoking. I chose, yeah, I, yeah. yeah I, I chose to smoke when I did at the time, mm. uh, and I chose to give up. It's the freedom mm. to make that choice. Mm. Uh, and in the event, I, I did looked into a lot of different ways. I tried the pharmaceutical solutions, and they were absolutely hopeless for mm. me. Mm. Now, they work apparently for some people. I tried reading that book, Alan Carr's book. It mm. had no effect at all on me. Um, so I tried e-cigarettes, and they worked. They were, they were actually quite brilliant uh, and and uh, I have to my friends and to people who contacted me and asked me about it, I've highly recommended them as a method of quitting. Um, why why so, did you choose to give up smoking? Well, I, there was a personal reason at the time. Um, I, I, I actually, as part of another uh, um, treatment, I had to have a deep lung uh, x-ray. And the radiologist, in fact, told me that I had nothing to worry about. I had the lungs of a young man. And she told me, strangely enough, that it was clear that I'd never smoked a cigarette in, in my life. Now, I had been 49 years smoking at that stage. So I thought, well, that's a pretty good indication, a, a good time to quit, I reckoned. OK, well, you're following a, a trend uh, because I think the amount of smokers uh, between 2000 and 2018 had decreased, uh, but men didn't give up, not in the same numbers as women and girls. But that seems uh, to be in reverse now. And the World Health Organization is suggesting that more men will be giving up. Uh, you're vaping, though. Uh, are you concerned about the health implications of vaping? Uh, I mentioned that uh, study from Queen's University. No, I, I, I'm not, of, I, you see, I'm not a scientific researcher mm. per se, but sometimes when I look at things like this, there's obvious, obvious things that stand out that says to me that this is just propaganda, it's not proper not proper uh, uh, research. But there is uh, a professor, uh, Michael Siegel, in the United States. He's been, he's probably the the foremost voice, anti-smoking voice in America. Professor Siegel for 40 years has been fighting uh, tobacco and has been uh, has been fairly extreme in some of the recommendations that he's made on that on that side. Now he studied e-cigarettes when they came out first, nearly 12, 13 years ago, 
uh, and he thought they were a brilliant idea. And he was he was pushing them as as a way for smokers to quit. So he does his own research separately and has been doing, like I say, for forty years. So he looked at this this uh, study that was published in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine, and he made some clear points. And he said that the study was deeply flawed because it failed to consider. It didn't. You see, they they just compared vapors to non-vapors, people who never smoked uh, and who've never used a vape. Um, he's comparing them the two together. And he's basically saying, which is quite true, um, that people who vape are more likely to be smokers. Mm. And he points out um, that, that, that uh, one study found uh, that 68% of adult smokers who did vape were heavy smokers. Um, so it, it, with a, a long history of smoking, which this study didn't take into account, um, if, if they ignore that, they can't, they can't then just blame uh, the, the vaping for any problems that they, they, they found. Uh, if somebody has been like me smoking, well, admit, maybe I'm a bad example, but a smoker who's been 40 years smoking uh, and then goes vaping, if you compare them to somebody who doesn't vape and, and you, you look at their medical condition, they're likely to be entirely different. Now, they didn't, they didn't cover for that. And because smoking history is such a strong predicator, uh, in this case of the development of chronic lung disease, uh, the failure to consider the smoking history just invalidates the whole thing. Um, Do you think it, you might give up in the new year? Give up the vaping? Mm. Actually, do you know something? It's funny you should say that. I was only thinking of that recently, but I was only thinking as well as a New Year's re- resolution to give up the beer on the weekend. And uh, you begin to look at things and mm. say, is there, is there any good reason to live at all? <laughs> if you, can't, mm. if you can't have so, you know, a little bit of what's, uh, what's not good for you. But um, I, I don't know. I might. I might. It's not something that I'm, I'm, I'm seriously considering at the moment. But this study, one last thing, this study said that, that, that they said that, that um, e-cigarette use could cause COPD, those chronic lung mm-hmm. disease, mm-hmm. within three years. Now, heavy smoking can take decades to cause COPD. How is it conceivable that vaping... And well, you know, COPD I, is caused by the smoke from cigarettes. You, well, you, you light a plant, you, you light a, an existing mm-hmm. uh, biological instrument, and the smoke from it, it changes its chemical composition and the smoke is carcinogenic. It's not plausible, given that you don't light vaping, uh, you don't light an e-cigarette, uh, it's steam you're talking about. It's not plausible that it can cause COPD in three years. It, it's just, it's a nonsense bit of Well, research, really. yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, it's uh, something that is of concern to people. And of course, uh, the government will outlaw the sale of e-cigarettes uh, to minors in due course. But we leave it there for the moment, John. And All thank right, you right. indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. John Mallon, thank spokesperson for Forest Ireland. Now, before we leave you today, I just want to mention that as LMFM's Christmas schedule kicks into place, that we will have a programme for you tomorrow and we will have a programme for you again on Monday morning but this will be my last programme of the year this year so before I go I just ask you to be good to each other this Christmas and I hope that you have a peaceful new year and God willing you'll join us for our next programme with Ken Murray tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM Good morning, bye bye The Michael Reed Show with Airgrid managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.